All right, so John chapter 20, verses 11 through 31. We're looking at Jesus being risen from the dead and having some appearances to Mary Magdalene, to um, nine of the disciples, and then, uh, or to ten of the disciples, and then to uh, Thomas with them later on. So a few different appearances today. And as we start out here in verse 11, we find Mary just wondering what happened to the body of Jesus. She is in distress and she's worried. Where is his body? Where is this one that we've loved so much? And I was reminded of 20 years ago uh, when my dad passed away. Uh, We had him cremated and we were living in Lakeview at the time. And we had him buried uh, over in Klamath Falls at Eternal Hills Cemetery with some of our other family members who'd passed away. And uh, he passed away in July, and it wasn't until about Christmas time uh, that I was able to make it over to Klamath Falls and um, see, you know, where he lay, you know, where his resting place was. And uh, Lindsay and I had just started dating at the time, and so good first date is head on down to the cemetery that your dad's buried at. And... uh, so we went down there and um, looked around, and I thought I knew about where he was and couldn't find him. And we went into the mausoleum and started looking at all the name plates on the marble and couldn't find his name, couldn't find his name. And I started to get kind of shaken up, you know, like, where is his body, you know? And, uh, and then you look outside the mausoleum, and there's just rolling hills with nothing but graves, you know? And I just began to kind of get shook up and. We had to walk about, I don't know, a quarter of a mile over to the um, office and ask them, you know, hey, where is my dad's body, <laughs> you know? And uh, they had to look through the file system, and they gave us a number and told us about where it was, and then we went and found it. But there was this little period where I began to weep and be shaken and just telling my, well, she didn't know it at the time, but future wife, um, you know, uh, don't, don't, ah, I don't, I should know where my dad is. I should know where his body is, you know? And uh, she held my hand and comforted me, and it was very... No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, uh, how inappropriate. Um, but Mary is in a, a similar place right here. You know, here is the one that, um, you know, they had known as the Lord, and, and the Master, and the Rabbi, and uh, a very confusing week it's been as he's been um, put on trial, and crucified, and and buried just a couple nights before, and, uh, and, you know, to want to go and pay respects and have memories and think and be comforted, uh, but to find him not there finds Mary in a precarious place. She's determined at this point by verse 11 to find out what had happened to the body of Jesus. And, and so verse 11, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. So uh, she's crying. Uh, we have really vivid details here. She stood. She's weeping, crying. Again, she wept. Now she stoops down into the tomb, perhaps a lower door opening into that cave. And she looks, standing and stooping and looking John 25 tells us, just down a few verses, that John, when he got there, and Peter, they also had to stoop down and to look in. And there they saw 
the linen clothes lying there, but that's not what Mary sees lying there on uh, the stand inside the tomb. In verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had laid. What an incredible thing to know that we live in a world created by a God who has taken such great care to us that he has created angels to minister to us and to help communicate. And Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that angels are ministering spirits or flames of fire. And in 114 of Hebrews, they are ministering spirits who minister for those who will inherit salvation. And so it's just kind of interesting, you know, in the day and age and in a culture that really has naturalized everything, we forget that angels are real. You know, it's the Christmas season, you know, every time a bell rings, you know, a reindeer breaks his leg or whatever it is, you know, you know, but no. Not even really real, but an angel gets its wings, although it does really pull on those heartstrings, doesn't it? Little, little Gabriel just got his wing, just one wing, working on the other one. They grow in slow. Uh, but the angel, man, these are, these are real dudes that the Lord has made to minister to us. And we see them ministering even in the New Testament. And, and Jesus even says that for the little people, the little ones, the children, that... Uh, that their angels always appear before the presence of the Lord. Like they give an account for these little ones. And we are just moved to, I was moved to tears yesterday because we've been trying to adopt for about a year and we've had a few different opportunities and occasionally we'll go to the adoption page for the Northwest and just look through the children and pray over the children. And just every time I just feel welling up in me, just tears for these ones that are in such hard places and just was reminded just praying over them this Christmas time it's a scary time and and just Lord let your angels you know come and minister to them and not to get weird you know some weird preachers out there that are like where should call on the angels I don't I don't want to get weird about it but thank you Lord for creating the angels to come and minister and here here we have them almost resembling the Ark of the Covenant in the mercy seat from the Old Testament where if you remember in the book of Exodus the angels at the mercy seat on the ark they faced inward toward the uh, mercy seat a picture of heaven the true and better temple and the true and better tabernacle where on the mercy seat is jesus and his blood has been sprinkled to atone for our sins and on each side of him are cherubim and seraphim who are worshiping and crying out holy 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 lord god almighty who was and is and is to come and here we have in a sense a picture of that in this tomb an empty seat, but with angels at the foot and at the head. And uh, they're in these white clothes. And, um, and they show that this empty tomb is not explained by appealing to the grave robber theory. But as Carson said, this is nothing other than the invasion of God's power. Interesting to be reading the Easter story around Christmas, isn't it? But to know that at both, they are reminding seasons of the invasion of God's power into this earth. And these angels in verse 13 said to her, woman, why are you weeping? 
She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord and I do not know uh, where they've laid him. Maybe NIV softens it a little in our culture. Dear woman, dear woman, why are you weeping? And as she says, why? I don't know where my Lord is. I don't know. I've gone to the mausoleum. I've gone to the marble part. I've gone outside to the grass and I don't know what they've done with his body. And it's interesting. The angels make no reply to her. The Bible says you're a ministering spirit sent to minister for those who talk, buddy, where's the body? You know, they don't need to talk because in just a moment, she's going to have a conversation with Jesus by verse 14. When she'd said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Many commentators from the third century and on, even since Chrysostom, have held that the angels might have made some motion there at the sight of the Lord behind Mary. But we don't know. But I'm looking for his body. I don't know where they've laid him. And the angels kind of go. She's like, what? And so she turns, right? She turns around and she saw Jesus standing there. Perhaps, though, she's so blinded by her tears. Anybody ever been there? So many tears in your eyes that you're, you're in a sense, blinded. You can't make out distinct shapes. And only she can now make out a man standing behind her. In Matthew's Gospel, 28, verses 1 through 10, if you focus on verse 8 through 10, they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And, uh, and actually it's verse nine where you see all the women there at this account, seeing Jesus, holding him by the feet and worshiping him. But before kind of this dramatic account in John, our verse 15 says, Jesus says to her woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she supposed him to be the gardener said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And so she's at this moment where she's kind of missing the point of the whole thing. She's so focused on the body and where is the body and it's not here. And her natural fleshly mindset is someone's take. Grave robbers, maybe. Gardener, maybe. Owner of the tomb, maybe. Uh, Who knows? But he's not here and I'm freaking out a little bit. And uh, something that I've kind of been learning from uh, like a leadership book and podcast I've been listening to, I don't know if you've heard of Jocko Willink, but he often says in the midst of combat and in the midst of battle, in the midst of stressful situations, something that he teaches his soldiers and his Navy SEALs are that you can have so many bullets flying around you and the bombs can be bursting so loud and you can just get so focused on what's happening right in front of you that you miss the whole big picture of what's happening. And so he encourages people that whenever you're in those moments, it might be in combat or it might be in a conflict or it might be in just something horrific that's happening to you. He always says, you know, disengage, disconnect and detach and just take a couple steps back and look at what's happening around you. And in a sense, Jesus is motioning her to do just that. He's asking some prying questions and he's encouraging her to just kind of now remember, you know, remember what's going on here. Remember the big picture. Remember what the one you're looking for had told you before he died on the cross that he was going to rise from the dead on the third. Can you just kind of step back a little bit? I know it's really freaky right here. 
But let's just come back. Let's detach just a little bit. First of all, woman, why are you weeping? Question number one. Some have said this is a mild rebuke. Why are you weeping? There's no reason to be weeping. Similar to the angels in the other gospels. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you weeping? There's no reason to be weeping. Detach a little bit. Why wouldn't there be reason to be weeping? Second question he asks, whom are you seeking? Like what one writer said, this question is an invitation to reflect on the king of the Messiah she was expecting. And thus to widen her horizons and to recognize that grand as her devotion to him was, her estimate of him was still far too small. I like it when this happens, when I write down in my notes, Navy SEALs, detach, step back from the trial for a minute. And, you know, and then like you read a book and it says, she needed to widen her horizons and to recognize that as grand as her devotion to Jesus was, her estimate of him was far too small. So maybe you're going through something this Christmas, this Christmas season that has just got you in knots and just has you anxious and just has you just missing on what God is doing and the grandness of it all. And he would just say to you, like, just step back and widen your horizons of who I am, what I'm doing, what I've done. Right now, one of my sons, okay, it's not Russell, (laughs) is very scared often. It's not... I mean, he's scared about different things. I'm scared right now. You know, just, oh, it's just scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. You know, and I'm just trying to speak to, and I'm just trying to, let's widen it. You know, the other night I sat down like, hey, son, you know what? There are scary things that happen in life. I don't want to tell you nothing scary will ever happen. I don't want to tell you there's never invasions. There's never, like, kids all over the world are going through horrific stuff. You need to know that happens. But you need to know who our God is and that he's a God who never leaves you and never forsakes you. And even if he were to slay you, the Bible says, even if God were to be the one that kills you, still you can trust him. Widen your horizons. Don't have a small view of who God is. God's going to let me get eaten by a monster when I go into the bathroom. It's like you have a really small view of bring it out just a little bit. Bring it out. And we laugh. We do laugh, you know. And then it's like, it's a natural thing for children to be scared of the dark. Oh, it was the Lord that created the dark so we could have rest. The Lord is present in the dark. Just speaking these things. And and you here this week, you're scared of these different situations. And you just need to know, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. She... Supposing him to be the gardener said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. She wanted to care for the body of this dear friend. It appears she would have carried the body for away herself. And she seems to be a woman that had some means. Luke tells us she would care for Jesus in the Galilee area and provide for needs. And so, uh, you know, the The proverb is true that love feels no load. You know, I love Jesus. I'll pack his body, you know, whatever he weighed before, maybe 160 pounds plus 100 pounds of spices. I'll carry him. Where is he? Give me his body. And so verse 16, then Jesus says to her, 
Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabbani, which is to say, teacher. So whatever it was, maybe it was that familiar way he would say her name, but just in one word, kind of breaks her out of this little trance, you know, breaks her out of this very narrow view of who he is, brings her out of it. And with Mary, I think it was Spurgeon that said, you know, in Jesus, he preaches this powerful one word sermon, just Mary. And it just brought to light and brought to life Mary and where she was at. Anguish and despair are instantly swallowed up by astonishment and by delight. Here she says, my teacher or my rabbi. One said it might not be the highest Christological confession, but at this point Mary is enthralled by the restored relationship, even though she might not be contemplating the theological implications of it. And so says there that uh, she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. And Jesus said to her in verse 17, do not cling to me, for I'm not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Anybody find this verse interesting in many different ways? First of all, do not cling to me. You're getting me dirty. No, I'm just kidding. Do not cling to me. What is up with this statement? Would, Je- or would Mary contaminate Jesus before he made his way into heaven? You know, doesn't heaven have some sort of decontamination spray, you know, that when you're going up in there, you just kind of, you know, let it just hose you down? Why, why can't Mary touch Jesus here? Or maybe you've got the NASB. It's not just, it's not touching, it's clinging. Stop clinging to me. Parents, you kind of get this, right? I just need a little space. <laughs> Not me, just you guys counseled some of you. So, so stop clinging to me or do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. Okay, you guys, four ideas of what this is talking about. You ready to get a little bit scholarly? Okay, and I had to dumb it down for myself. So you're welcome, okay? McGee writes that a paraphrase of this might be I've not yet reached a state of ascension. I'm in the progress of ascending. Okay, so don't cling to me. I'm in this process of ascending. All right? Uh, It's not a favorite in what I've read, okay, of of many of the scholars, but it's it's trying to figure out what's going on and looking at the language and and not even said at the risk of over-translating it, Okay. Now, Zerwick more briefly says, let go of me because you must go to my brothers with a message. So perhaps that's what's going on here. Um, It's not that he's just like, ew, you know, or don't touch me or don't touch me. I'm in the process of ascending, even though it's a 40 day process. And finally, Ascension Sunday will be that final departure kind of once until the return. All right. Uh, and so, you know, Zerwick, a little bit helpful, let go of me, because you've got something to go do. Go to my brothers with a message. Uh, third thought, it's a little more deep, that the ascension has happened between the time of Mary forbidden to touch him 
and Thomas in just a little bit invited to touch him that somewhere in between some ascensions have been happening because we know that Jesus didn't just hang out and live again with the disciples for those 40 days that he was going he was he was kind of absent sometimes and so perhaps some ascension had happened or an ascension or two and so then after that he's with Thomas and so Thomas is invited to touch his hand and his side you guys know that we'll be there in just a little bit this view is sometimes linked with the suggestion of, by Langrine, stop touching me or attempting to do so. It is true that I've not yet ascended to the Father, but I'm about to do so. Right? And to read some scholars on this, the idea is that the resurrection has opened the door to a new intimate spiritual relationship between Jesus and his disciples. Physical contact, contact is no longer appropriate, appropriate mode of personal contact, even though it's still possible to appeal to touch as a proof of the reality of the resurrection and of the continuity, continuity between the historical Jesus and the risen Christ. Okay, Carson says, with some strengths, that interpretation is unlikely. Okay? But what that was getting at is, like, this isn't how we do it anymore. Okay? Like I'm risen, I'm ascending, and we're entering into a new era where you don't need to touch me, cling to me, and hang out with me anymore because we're moving in in this church age to the age of the Spirit where the Spirit is going to be just as amazing personal contact to the Lord. Fourthly, here's a paraphrase of this fourth, fourth idea. You guys following along? Okay, Because this is like complicated stuff. I mean, I had to do some reading on it this week. Here's a paraphrase of this a fourth idea. Stop touching me or stop holding on to me, for I'm not yet ascended to my Father. In other words, I'm not yet in the ascended state, so you do not have to hang on to me as if I were about to disappear permanently. This is a time for joy and sharing of good news, not for clutching me as if I were uh, some jealously guarded private dream come true. Stop clinging to me, but go and tell my disciples that I am in process of ascending to my father and your father. So this makes the contrast between the prohibition to Mary and the invitation to Thomas easier to understand. Mary is told to stop because her enthusiastic and relieved grasping of Jesus does not really comprehend what is transpiring. She... uh, does, uh, she believes him to be alive, but has not understood that he's about to disappear or soon will. Thomas is told to touch, but he hasn't yet believed. He's to touch so that he will believe. And with FF Bruce here, final thing. I know you guys are like, you're pushing it, buddy. I know, but it's going to be on the recording for you to go back and be like, oh, so helpful. Okay. FF Bruce, great historian, great uh, expositor. The most natural interpretation is that Mary and her delight at finding her Lord alive clutches him lest she should lose him again. His words might mean, let me go. I've not ascended to the Father yet. Go and take this message to my brothers. I shall still be available when you've done so. This has to do with a new phase of Jesus' personal relationship with the Father apart from which he could not confirm his spiritual presence to his disciples in perpetuity. If so, his words may mean, let me go, 
don't impede my ascending to the Father. So, there you go. Put that in your eggnog and drink it, all right? So go to my brothers and say to them, or remember, it could be, let me go because I've got to go to my brothers and say to them, okay? I'm ascending to my father and your father. And how wonderful that Hebrews tells us that we're not any longer called servants, but we're called brethren. My father and your father. And Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 says at the end, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. But then he has this interesting phrase, and I'm going to my God and your God. Again, referencing the messianic term uh, from Psalm 22, also spoken of from the cross, calling the Father my God. But also that this God was Mary's God, to my God and your God. Mary was a believer. God was her God. Yahweh was her God. Good question today. Is he your God as well? Do you have other gods entering into Christmas? Do you have idolatry in your life? Or could Jesus say to you while looking in your eye, he's my God. He's my God. Then we have moved on now in verse uh, 18 from Jesus's conversation with Mary to Mary's conversation with the disciples. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she'd seen the Lord and they'd spoken these things to her. And then verse 19, Jesus is going to have a conversation with the disciples. Are we having a glitch up there? Let's uh, restart that computer. That might help um, with that. And uh, verse 19, that same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. So again, John mentions, and he's going to mention it even again, that it was the first day of the week, uh, later on in that evening. So it's Easter evening. A lot of times we think a lot about Easter morning and early sunrise services, but here's something incredible is still happening during Easter evening. This same day, uh, We had many things happen. Mary Magdalene had an appearance. The other women had an appearance of Jesus. The two on the road to Emmaus had an appearance. Peter had a special uh, appearance. And 10 of the disciples without Thomas there would all have appearances there on this Easter day. Here in the evening, we find them together with doors shut because they were afraid of uh, the Jews. But Jesus comes and stands in their midst. Something interesting as we look at resurrected bodies and what will it be like. And oftentimes my children have questions. Whatever it is, we know that Jesus somehow went through his grave clothes and left them there in the tomb. Okay, We know that Jesus can just show up in a room right, and disappear out of a room. He did that with the two on the road to Emmaus. We know that Jesus can eat in his resurrected body. And so this very interesting first fruits Jesus, the first one to rise from the dead, gives us a bit of an idea of what the resurrection uh, is like. We have the disciples sort of in a 2020 America state of being in lockdown, right? But even in the midst of a lockdown, Jesus is not locked out. 
It was trapped that said afterward when the spirit would come upon them, they not only set open the doors, but began to preach Christ boldly in the temple without dread of danger. But this is a few months earlier here. They're in lockdown for fear of the Jews, not yet having the Holy Spirit. But the doors are shut and then all of a sudden Jesus is standing in their midst. He silently shows up. It was referenced in one of my readings, and I thought it was very fitting for today, that the hymn, the Christmas hymn, written about 1860s United States, the Christian hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, has some helpful phraseology that links the cradle to the grave. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. Especially that phrase, thinking of the resurrection and the appearances of Jesus. How silently. How silently that wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. Where children pure and happy pray to the blessed child, where misery cries out to thee, Son of the mother mild, where charity stands watching and faith holds wide the door, the dark night wakes, the glory breaks, and Christmas comes once more. I was thinking of that as I was kind of meditating on that verse, that even in these times where we press outside of the commercialism of Christmas and the secularization of Christmas, And we focus on the kingdom come of Christmas. And we begin to look and love on those that are hurting. The foster kids, the orphans, the widows, those who are in prison, those who are homeless and hopeless in this season. It's a minute, it's a moment of Christmas happening. As it's been said, every sermon is a Christmas sermon. We're preaching an Easter sermon on Christmas week. And we're reminded as he silently comes, it's a wondrous gift to us. And that where, what was it said? Where children are pure and happy, praying to that blessed child Jesus. Wherever there are people who are in misery, crying out to Jesus. Wherever there's charity, charity, mercy generosity, standing, watching, and people with faith holding open their doors. The dark night wakes, the glory breaks, the lockdown becomes unlocked, and Christmas comes once more. Final verse here of this. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell, oh, come to us, 
Abide with us, O Lord Emmanuel. So Jesus coming into the room, not knocking on the door, just arriving. Not even invited. He's just there. He came. The Lord, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which is to say, God with us. In the Easter story, Jesus is operating the same way. If it were a myth, he probably would have crashed in and came in victoriously and mighty and just kind of made a big deal about it. But here he sneaks in. Private little meeting. Sneaks up. You can read the other gospel accounts. But some would say that this is where the early church began to also meet, not only on Sunday morning, calling it the Lord's Day, but also Sunday evening gathering. Gathering together on Sunday evening. And the history says that they used to, on Sunday evening, they would pray, Maranatha. Have you ever heard of it? Any Pentecostals in the bunch? Oh yeah, Maranatha music. 1992, that's what I'm talking about. Shout to the Lord. Okay, no. Uh, Maranatha, what does that mean? Oh Lord, come. Oh Lord, come. And so the early church would begin meeting on Sunday nights and they would close out or have as a special phraseology in their gathering, Maranatha, oh Lord, come. In remembrance of, we're in lockdown. And here he was, right? The silent, wondrous gift to us. And what does he say as he shows up? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. We're going to notice that phrase, I believe, four times in this section here. But peace be with you. Or in modern vernacular, peace. Okay, something like that. And when he'd said this, verse 20, he showed them his hands and his side And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. He was seen by Cephas. He was seen by the twelve. And as he shows them himself, he shows them his hands. He shows them his side. Thomas, in a little bit, is going to have the same thing a little more intimately, uh, be invited to touch the hand and the side. Temple reminds us of Jesus wounds as his credentials to the suffering race of human beings. And Temple cites a poem by Edward Shalito, Jesus of the Scars, published right after the savage butchery of World War I. Listen to this poem of Jesus of the Scars. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us. They're too calm. In all of the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know thy countersign. Final verse. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. 
They rode, but thou didst stumble to thy throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thy alone. And so writing that after the First World War, you know that just that was brutal on the planet. You know, some 103 years ago or so. And we've gone through some brutal things since. And what's helpful is in these times where we are in painful moments, we remember our God is not like a lowercase g God. Oh, they all have these just great and dramatic things that just like, boom, they're just there on their throne. Jesus went to the throne through the pain and the anguish as a suffering servant. And for this reason, God has exalted him and given the name that is above every name. We have a God that has scars. And when the disciples saw the scars, they saw and were glad. And Jesus said to them again, same conversation. It's nice to repeat things. Peace to you. Peace to you. Peace. Peace, child. When I was in Israel, I brought home a nice souvenir for my mom. Thought it was very Lakeview mom-ish. And uh, it was a tile that said, Shalom, y'all. <laughs> and so, you know, Jesus might be saying, peace, you know, or he might be saying, Shalom, y'all, you know. But he is saying, peace to you. And he shows his missionary heart for the world in the missionary trinity. The Father's a missionary father, as the Father sent me. Jesus is a missionary son, so I've sent you. The Spirit who anointed Jesus anointed him for his mission, for his service. And so now they are, in a sense, having a commission as apostles to carry on Christ's work. Not to begin a new one, but to carry on Jesus' work of reaching the world with his salvation. And so that technical term, apostle, given to these alone, uh, is something that is given to them at this point as they're sent out commissioned by the Lord. In verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed. Emphaseo in the Greek. Emphazima? (laughs) Breathing. Emphaseo. He breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Remember John chapter 14 through 16 in our park services, we talked a lot about Jesus Setting up the stage for the Holy Spirit to come. John chapter 7, Jesus talked about torrents of living water who would come upon anyone who thirsts. They can come to Jesus and receive torrents of living water. And then it says, John commentary uh, has a commentary on it. And John says, this he spoke of concerning the Holy Spirit, whom they would not receive yet because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So somehow we're at some stage of Jesus' glorification. The resurrection has happened. Ascension hasn't permanently happened yet. And here he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of writings on this. I've got a lot of notes. I'm going to spare you. I've read enough poetry to you today. But for me, call me a Lakeview High School graduate. I think when Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, I think, you can do your own research, you guys are sensible people with Bibles of your own, I think that they received the Holy Spirit. I think that they were born again at this moment, as the gospel, the sacrifice for sin, the resurrection, the new life was available 
for them that they were able, this first time in human history, to receive the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When you get to Acts chapter 2, I believe a secondary uh, encounter happens with the Holy Spirit called the baptism with the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit will come upon them, humble in that. There are different understandings of that. But I believe right here is this moment in human history where you have the first Christians born again, filled with the Holy Spirit to now know God and to experience God, to understand God. And with the need of, uh, with the Holy Spirit comes the call of why they need the Holy Spirit, because they're going to go out and forgive the sins of people. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now we know that it's not the human that forgives the sin and brings that atonement before the Lord. That's the Lord's work. But the preacher's role, and that includes you guys, is declaratory. We get to declare people that they can have confidence that as they come to Jesus and receive by faith his grace and forgiveness of sins, we can have a confident role of saying, your sins are forgiven you. And for people that refuse the cross of Christ and refuse the lordship of Jesus, we can say with confidence, you are still dead in your sins, my friend. In Acts chapter 2, Peter will preach with power the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus and the forgiveness that comes in his name. So what happens in life after lockdown? Well, we let the Lord fill us with his spirit and we go out and we preach forgiveness of sins. Now Jesus has a conversation with Thomas and aren't you glad to know it's only 1117? Give me till 1125 and we'll close with worship. Okay, you guys got that? You can hold me to it. You can hold me to it. Please don't. We might go a little longer than that. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we've seen the Lord. Which is, by the way, a great thing for a disciple to do. Tell his friends, we've seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails... And put my hand into his side. I will not believe. Now Thomas was a loyal follower of Jesus. But a bit pessimistic at at times. Remember John 11 when Jesus was going to go and uh, raise Lazarus from the dead. And whatever Jesus said made Thomas think that they were going to go. That Jesus was going to go and die. And so Jesus says let us go with him and die too. Just a little bit like oh that was a little bit dark. Thomas said in John 14, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Alexander McLaren said, Thomas did the very worst thing that a melancholy man can do. He went away to brood in a corner by himself and so to exaggerate all his idiosyncrasies to distort the proportion of the truth and hug his despair by separating himself from his fellows. Therefore, he lost what they got, the sight of the Lord. You guys catch that? He did the worst thing that you can do when you're melancholy. He went off by himself into a dark corner. God calls us to community, guys. God calls us to be around people who can weep with us as we weep and rejoice with us as we rejoice. And the Proverbs tell us that if you are one who isolate yourself, that you seek your own glory and rage against all wise judgment. Okay? 
So don't be one that I can make it on my own. That's an unbiblical thing, all right? God has called us to the community. And how sad for Thomas that in the midst of this, he kind of just went by himself and he missed out. In human history, the resurrected Jesus was on the earth for 40 days and Thomas would miss out on a whole week of that. I missed it that whole week. I do appreciate that he was honest. He didn't just, wasn't a pseudo-believer. That he was so shocked by the tragedy of the crucifixion that he didn't find it easy for its consequences to just be a knoll. He didn't want to succumb to wishful thinking. He didn't want to be taken into that. He knew what imagination could be capable of. He knew that optical illusions were not unknown, but he reckoned that the evidence of touch would show whether there was solid flesh in those holes or not. He wasn't really any more doubting than the others. He'd been with them on the evening that first Easter day. If he had been, his doubts would have gone away. And so verse 26 tells us that after eight days, his disciples were again inside. And by the way, the eight days are to be reckoned as inclusive. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Okay? So called inclusive counting. And in that, Jesus is there. They're on the Lord's Day assembling one week after Easter. Right? Thinking of the resurrection and Jesus will show up. Carson says the chronology is not sacrificed to theology. The emphasis on the Lord's Day may reflect peculiar theological interests of the writer. If the readers are Jews and proselytes interested in the Christian faith, it may be a subtle allusion to the origins of Christian worship on that first day of the week. And Jesus says to what to Thomas? Again, he says, peace to you. Peace to you. What the angels sang out on Christmas morning in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace. Goodwill towards men. I like the saying, and I saw it again on a tank top on a, on a meme this week. A guy was wearing it, and his shirt said, No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, K-N-O-W, then you'll know peace. A little cheesy, very true, all right? If you know Jesus, you'll know peace. And from the cradle, angels would sing, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And in the resurrection, the risen one who was in the cradle, was in the grave and is now resurrected, he cries out, peace. There's peace on earth. There's one Christmas hymn, I really love this line. A thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. I love that line. Have you guys ever had just like a thrill of hope? I know when I was like, give me five more minutes today. You guys were like. (laughs) You know, Clay, come on up. See there, I'm a man of my word. A little bit early, actually. A thrill of hope. Oh, 2,000 years ago, it was a weary world that would rejoice. Guys, today, look at our world. 
The answer is in Jesus. Peace, 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 he says. Shalom, y'all. And when you go out and you open that mouth of yours and you start speaking the peace of the gospel to people, there's a thrill of hope. There's a thrill of hope. The weary world will rejoice. I can have peace because my sins are forgiven. I can have peace because the slavery to sin is broken. I can have peace because my Savior takes my fears and my cares. I can have peace because my life is settled for eternity. And Jesus said to Thomas in 27, reach your fingers here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. We don't know if Thomas actually, you know, you know, maybe it was like, look, you look, okay. I think we can assume that he did, you know, touch that. But the great exhortation is do not be unbelieving anymore. The book of Hebrews tells us, beware, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart in departing from the living God. It's an evil heart to depart from the living God. Great wickedness is unbelief. Don't be unbelieving. But it's an imperative, be believing. He's so gracious here. Into his, in people's fear, he speaks courage. Into people's doubts, he speaks assurance. And he just tells them, don't, don't unbelieve anymore. A soft, softer way is, stop being unbelieving, but show yourself a believer. Or in the words of Journey, Don't stop believing. Hold on to that fear. (laughs) Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus says this great question. Do you believe this? Don't be unbelieving, but believing. Do you believe this? I just, I just say today, believe. Believe, Primeville. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Don't be an unbeliever anymore. Okay? Now, we know that God's in all that. Like, God moves in your life and he grants to you repentance and all of this. And yet, at the same time, I can say to you, stop it. Stop it. Stop being an unbeliever. I was thinking last night at the prayer meeting that uh, this week, for some reason, we have had like a breakout of fruit flies in our house. And I'm just like, what in the world, right? I had like three bananas sitting on the counter. They weren't overly ripe or anything. And I'm like, you dirty bananas, you know? And so, you know, I occasionally will find fruit flies somewhere. I'll take the garbage out, take the fruit out. You know, it's like, everything's good. Wash the fruit clean up all the messes and i'm like tracking down where these things are coming from and the weeks uh, the week has gone on and they're just everywhere and i'm clean and pouring bleach down i mean not if you're supposed to do that i do that or not if you're not supposed to but (laughs) okay i think we covered that cleared that up and uh scrubbed their scum and all that stuff and made little traps for them i'm catching them by the tens 
incredible, right? And just as we were praying, I was just thinking about that evil heart of unbelief and that unbelief is, it's sinful and it hinders and it puts you in a place like Thomas and how in our life, we just, we regularly have these spots of unbelief and these fruit flies, you know, they're not like the house flies of August, you know, and you buy the assault gun, you know, uh, but these fruit flies, they're like, you can't even see them until you like walk right by it. And you're like, ah, and they're just, they're just there. You're, you know, you having fun back there? You're, you're ready to, by the way, I have your iPad. Okay. And the Lord, I was just praying last night at the pulse and I just felt like the Lord was like, call the church to repentance of unbelief in the things they think it's okay to be unbelieving in. So there are things in your, there's things that you're like, I believe Jesus was born in Bethlehem in a manger with hay. It's like, awesome. Okay. And you may be like, I believe he rose from the dead and he appeared to the disciples and he appeared to Thomas. Awesome. Okay. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. Awesome. Give it all to him. You don't get to pick and choose. Say the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Okay. Because when you let those little things like, it's okay for me to do this or to say that or to be like this or to go here and this and that. It's these little fruit flies that are just, you're allowing in your life. And it's a sign of, there's something going on in my home. I don't know where it is. I know I'm going to find like a dead thing under a couch or something like that. But it's just, Lord, show us the dead things. Show us the scum. Show us the fruit that's rotting and let us repent and not be unbelieving, but believing. And so what did Thomas say? My Lord, my God. A great, simple confession of faith that I'm going to call you guys to say today as well. Will you stand with me? And maybe for the first time, you'll say this great and deep theological confession that's better than any of the confessions the reformers thought up at all of the different councils. So simple. So heartfelt, so to the point, and so personal. Mine, my Lord Jesus, my God Jesus. Declare that with me today. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus, here we are today. We believe that you've resurrected after you died on the cross for our sins. After you lived the life that we could never live, a life of sinlessness, perfection, complete and total pure love, serving those that you created. After you were born, the humble birth in a manger, the miraculous birth of a virgin. We confess this Christmas season, we believe and the doctrine of the virgin birth, we believe. We believe that in that birth came the Prince of Peace, Emmanuel. And so Lord, come here today. Meet every person in this room. We know that in this place, there are people who have been walking in unbelief for many years. They've been walking according to their own worldview according to their own understanding, not acknowledging you, 
not giving you the rightful place of lordship of their life, God of their world. And it's been disastrous. It's been dark. And they've been in a place of lockdown. And today, Lord, move by your spirit, breathe on them. The same breath that breathed breath into the life and the lungs of Adam in the Garden of Eden. The same breath that Ezekiel prophesies of would breathe over the valley of dry bones and those dry bones would begin to rattle and shake and grow flesh and sinew and tendon and muscle and flesh become an army. Breathe on us today, Lord, and breathe on those who formerly, before today, were unbelieving, but today they're believing. Maybe right where you're at today, you would just whisper under your breath and in your heart the prayer of Thomas, my Lord, my God. It's this week, Lord, that we cry out, my Lord, my God. We rejoice in the removal of sins from our filthy hearts and minds and bodies that you've washed us as white as snow you've purified our conscience so that we can serve you and live for you and rejoice at your coming once again someday Lord let's let this last song be a declaration for a few minutes of our Lord and our God Jesus Christ who takes away the sins of the world he's ascended to heaven and will come again. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Go ahead, Clay.